so I've been asked to speak on the topic of leadership and contemplation. The word contemplation is not there, but it's a central area of focus in this room today. So first of all, I want to say that I may disappoint those who are looking to me to set forth a unified and general theory about the qualities of leadership. Instead, I'm going to share with you my own personal experience in the exercise of leadership. And in some respects, experience is a euphemism for the many mistakes that I have made and the struggles that I have endured in learning how to become a more effective leader. And my own exercise of leadership is in a particular context, which may be of relevance to some of you, but perhaps not all of you. It is not leadership in a political context, the way Herman Rompuy talked about it yesterday, but rather in a international organization, a public international organization. As Jenny has said, until actually I think it's four days ago. I was the general counsel of the IMF and was responsible for running both a large department but also running a number of our programs um, in areas such as corruption, governance, uh, financial crisis resolution. So I want to talk to you a little bit about my experience in leadership in that context. And you, you can see for yourselves to whether or not it resonates in your own lives. But before I do so, I can't help but share with you my own views on some of the issues that were raised by both Lawrence and Herman yesterday. I was very inspired by both of their talks that focused very much on the crisis that currently exists with respect to international cooperation. So given the organization that I worked for, given what both Herman and Lawrence had talked about yesterday, I can't help but adding my voice in agreement. And for me, history is always so instructive. Over 70 years ago, while World War II was raging, beginning in 1942, politicians began planning for a new world order that was designed to prevent the type of cataclysm that was raging at the time. A cataclysm that they were not fully confident that they were going to prevail in but they were planning for a new world order. And they were cognizant of the fact that the economic nationalism that had occurred in the 1930s following the Great Depression had exacerbated the impact of the Great Ex Depression on people's lives. And this had fueled populism a push against the established order 
xenophobia, and had led to political extremism, including fascism. In fact, the policies that were pursued explicitly inverted the golden rule. Instead of love thy neighbor, they were called beggar thy neighbor policies. Beggar thy neighbor policies. The idea was every country for itself, we will cut off imports, manipulate our currency to maximize exports, and we're going to win that way. Does it sound familiar? And of course, this only led to a further collapse in economic activity. So during World War II, these men and women who were conceiving this system formulated a new architecture that was based on several principles. The first one is that we have to accept that we live in an interconnected world and it is folly or as Father Lawrence said, it is a delusion to believe that we can basically act autonomously. We have given up our, effectively our autonomy by virtue of living in an interdependent world. And in order to further our prosperity, we need to pool our national sovereignty. We need to learn to act collectively. And Herman made this point very powerfully yesterday. And second, we need to set up institutions that provide the machinery for this cooperation. Cooperation doesn't happen in an ad hoc way. It's not sustainable. You need to set up institutions that provide the machinery for cooperation. And these institutions derive their legitimacy from the democratic forms of government of the members' countries. Now, in the case of the IMF, the institution that I work for, we were responsible for minimizing the risk of economic nationalism with respect to exchange rate policies. And we were also given financial powers. We have a balance sheet of about a trillion dollars that's designed to help countries when they face a financial crisis to pursue a course of action that steers them away from economic nationalism. Now, this system operated for over 70 years. The, the United Nations was the political analog that was designed to foster political cooperation. So these were specialized institutions that had as a common goal global welfare, but did it, each one of them, within their own remit. And in some respects, the system was extraordinarily successful. Extended period of economic prosperity that lifted millions, millions out of poverty. And some countries were so enamored with this pooling of national sovereignty that they wanted to take it further by having regional integration. And as Herman says, that was the EU. So it looked like we were on a trajectory in history where nationalism 
was a receding rather than a mounting force. But the problem with interdependence, the problem with globalization, is that while it has many winners, it also has losers. It creates economic dislocation. When jobs move elsewhere into markets where labor is cheaper, yes, on average consumers benefit because of lower prices, but certain segments of the population suffer enormously because of the loss of jobs. And also, notwithstanding that poverty might have been reduced in many countries, inequality has grown. And this has created anger. And the anger is fueled by the sense that the system is being abused and is, in fact, rigged by those who benefit it. And of course, a classic example of that is pervasive corruption that exists, the abuse of power by public officials. And we're not just talking about in emerging markets or low-income countries. In some respects, the Eurozone crisis was a fiscal crisis. And in some countries, this originated in the failure of wealthy people to pay taxes, which did, did legitimized the entire tax system. So a sense of anger, a sense of disenfranchisement, and of course, when the great financial crisis occurred in 2008, just like with the Great Depression, it accelerated the political fallout from these economic disparities. And this is the where we find ourselves. So, how to respond? Because it's a political backlash, not just about globalization, but as Harriman said yesterday, about the liberal order and against democracy. And of course, the supreme irony of this is that the backlash is really in advanced economies, and in fact is being led by the two countries that were the leaders in establishing the liberal order 70 years ago, the United States and the UK. In thinking how to respond, I have to tell you, the instinct of many, and I have to say including myself, is to vilify those who would challenge toleration and the liberal order. But it has become clear to me that that is not the answer. What we need to do is reform the system in order to save it. In some cases, that will require radical reform. In order to address the many legitimate grievances that people have with the existing system, and this means addressing loopholes in the trading system, it means addressing policies that result in excessive inequality and corruption. The challenge is that the trust 
in global institutions, in the global order, has evaporated to a certain extent. And as you know, once you've lost trust, it is very difficult to regain it. And this is not just a national, international issue. Even in the United States, within the United States, trust has evaporated in terms of people's support for the federal government. In some, in some places, the federal government is viewed as the enemy. It's called the deep state in the United States. The only place where trust continues to exist in many places is in local communities where people know the people who exercise authority and control. But the, ex the, ex the existential problem that we have is that the crises that we are facing are crises that cannot be solved at the local level. Climate change cannot be solved by local communities. We have global problems that require global solutions. And we have no choice but to continue to reform and rely on those institutions that are trying to manage it. But I do believe that local communities have a central role to play. Perhaps not in the, in the decision-making process, in the political decision-making process, because they don't have the authority to manage those problems. But perhaps in nurturing the values that support more enlightened decisions. And quite frankly, my own view is the type of meditation groups that form the background of the WCCM are precisely the type of communities that we need at the most local level to nurture those values. And I am confident that Bonvo next year will be a wonderful way of both amplifying and focusing those values. But that was a long digression. And I do want to just talk a little bit about leadership. And w when I look back at the last 14 years in the fund where I was general counsel, I realize that it's helpful to analyze leadership through two different lenses. The first is the decisions that leaders that I was responsible for, provide, for making that related to the operational and strategic direction of my institution. And the second lens focuses on relationships professional relationships, and in particular relationships with subordinates, the people that I was responsible for leading and managing. And of course, the two elements are interrelated. Management is in some respects about creating work through people. But leadership is much more than that. 
Leadership is about inspiring and empowering people to do this work. And one way of inspiring people is to make inspiring decisions. So the decision-making process and the management process are closely related when it comes to leadership, at least in my view. So let's talk a little bit about how the practice of meditation has helped me in the decision-making process. And I want to emphasize that while it has given me insights, I do not want to suggest that it has helped me master this process. I still feel very much like a beginner, but I'm now aware of where the responsibility lies. It's much easier to create a narrative where it's somebody else's problems. Now, one distinguishing feature of leadership, at least at the IMF, is the need to develop a certain agility, adaptability, in the decision-making process. And before I took up this, my position, I felt I had more control in my life. I had a specific set of responsibilities. I was able to manage my work agenda, my day, relatively well. As soon as I was appointed general counsel, the range of issues, the range of problems expanded exponentially. Quite frankly, I felt that I had lost control of my agenda. And you will, if you listen to interviews of people who have exercised leadership, they will tell you that one of the surprises of leadership is how much you feel that you've lost control rather than gained control. Because you are expected to resolve all of the issues that other people are unable or unwilling to resolve. And I would come into work with the list of things to be done. And by the end of the day, none of those things had been done. The list had gotten longer. I would begin to have a meeting. That meeting would be interrupted by a crisis. And basically, I found myself not being able to focus on anything because I was being asked to focus on too many things. People are nodding. I have a feeling that it's a familiar experience. <laughs> and that is why, that is one of the reasons why my daily practice of meditation has been so helpful for me. As you all know so well, meditation is effectively about learning to be in the present moment. And it's not easy because our thoughts if left to their own devices, would place us either firmly in the past or firmly in the future. And as John Maine said, it is about developing a spirit of attention. <coughs> and what I found is that to the extent to which I could retain that spirit of attention outside my meditation, it would have important benefits. In fact, what I found was dealing with a multitude of issues became easier because instead of panicking, and that is the, the feeling I often felt about having to do a multitude of things, 
I would learn to just focus on the specific task in front of me, to be here now. And I found that I became much more effective at that task. I was able to do it much more efficiently. And I have learned that professional tennis players, before they have matches, many of them meditate. And if you, you hear them interviewed, why is that? Because they say it slows the game down. And that's precisely what I experienced at work. It slowed my day down. I was felt that I was able to get much more done. But the second benefit of meditation in the decision-making process is in some respects more important and more profound for me. And it relates not to the process, but to the quality of the decisions. Now, as you all know, and this was something that was mentioned by Herman yesterday as well, a key benefit of meditation is that it helps you develop a degree of detachment. I think the Dalai Lama uses the word equanimity. By letting your thoughts go, you realize that you have thoughts, but you are not your thoughts. You are something bigger. You are something better than those thoughts. And it's important, this detachment, not to view it as a form of disengagement. And that's one of the problems I have with the word detachment. It suggests that you're disengaging. Rather, it gives you the benefit to actually engage more effectively. It helped me engage more effectively. I'm tempted to use the word thoughtfully because thoughts, the word thought in meditation has a dirty connotation. But perhaps the right word is consciously. It allows you to engage more consciously rather than unconsciously. And I realized so much of our thoughts are unconscious. So many times we are driven by our thoughts. And these thoughts include not just random ideas, broken narratives, but also emotions, anxieties, anger. And by separating ourselves from them, by creating this, using Lawrence's word, this space, they basically have less power over us. And it enables us to begin to see things more clearly. And when I say more clearly, I mean as they really are, rather than as by distorted by our narratives, our fears, our emotions, our fantasies. And this equanimity, this detachment has enabled me to exercise better judgment. Now, what is judgment? You know, they, some people say that good judgment is based on experience and experience is based on bad judgment which I think is actually, in my case, a good, a good start. But my view is that good judgment is facilitated by an assessment of the situation that actually exists, what I call reality-based decisions, 
rather than based on the emotions or the anger that can lead to bad decisions precisely because when you are captured by them, you see things that are not there and you ignore things that are there. And I've seen myself make those mistakes over and over again. So a contemplative practice helps leaders make better decisions because they are based on reality. My good friend and a leading member of the community, Peter Ng, who many of you know, has said that one of the reasons why he was such a successful investor was because he was able to analyze the market as it really was without imposing upon it certain biases that he had. And that's one of the reasons why he was able to make good investment decisions. Now, this is particularly important for leaders. Why? Because we, as I said, we are often called upon to make judgments that, by, you know, that others are unwilling or unable to make. Often, we have to choose between what look like equally bad options in circumstances where we do not have adequate information or adequate time, particularly in the context of a crisis. And in those circumstances, sometimes we fantasize or create a narrative that the situation is actually simpler. We try to simplify it because we're overwhelmed by the complexity. That results in bad decisions. As Einstein said, you should make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. Sometimes the world we have to accept is complex, and it requires a deliberative process. Leaders who come with supreme confidence based on simplistic slogans and ideology often end up making very poor decisions. In contrast, those that are impressed by the subtlety, the complexity, who agonize and go through a difficult deliberative process, they make better decisions. And of course, one of the, the sources of unconscious emotions and thoughts that really interfere with reality-based decisions is the ego. And this is a particularly dangerous problem for leaders. Partly because of those who surround them who have a vested interest in flattering them. And who actually lull the leader into believing their own infallibility. As Abraham Lincoln said, one of my favorite leaders, that Generally, men can, in those, term, in those days, they used, he used the word men, men and women, can handle adversity. If you really want to challenge a person's character, give them power. And I believe that the sense of infallibility leads to very poor decisions. An unwillingness to make mistakes. An unwillingness to admit mistakes results in 
leaders continuing along a policy which is misguided. And this can happen not only on an individual basis, but collectively, where a collective ego, because of an unwillingness to uh, admit a mistake, exacerbates the problem. A classic example of that was the Vietnam War. If any of you have ever read the Pentagon Papers, it's an extraordinary set of internal documents that memorialize discussions within the highest levels of the US government, the National Security Council, where it's evident that from about 1963, 1964 onwards, the government knew that they could not win in Vietnam. But they continued because they felt that if they backed down, it would undermine US credibility. They could not admit to the world that a mistake had been made. And the irony, of course, is that the Vietnam War did more to undermine US credibility than anything else. And that is also the case with individual leaders. Who we, it's so interesting to watch someone who's clearly made a mistake, who can't admit it, because they're afraid that if they do, they're going to look smaller, while the opposite is true. By failing to admit it, they look smaller. And those who admit their mistakes openly actually get bigger in our eyes. And I think one of the reasons why a contemplative practice helps you admit mistakes is because of this equanimity, we realize that we might have made a mistake, but we are not our mistakes. Again, we're something bigger than that. So it's okay to admit a mistake because you're not invalidating you, you as a whole person. Now, I think managing the ego involves a contemplative practice. I think it involves other tools. It involves bringing people around you who you know are willing to tell you that you're wrong. In my case, it also means having a family who helps uh, support me by making sure that any sense of self-importance that I have stays at the doorstep. <laughs> and, when, and I am just the incompetent husband or dad who's unable to do really anything well at the house. So I think it's really important that we support ourselves and that leaders support themselves in managing the ego. And one of the, the tools that I have used is one that is in one of the Dalai Lama's book, I think it's Beyond Religion, which he says, when you are confronted with a very difficult decision, and a decision that's going to have an impact, it's important to engage in a two-step process. First of all, when you're looking at the options, look inside and ask yourself, what is motivating you in making this decision? Is it about the exercise of power, the expansion of my responsibilities, my turf, my ego? Or is it about which option is the one that is best for the countries that I'm supposed to be helping? 
And once you understand where the motivations are, the choice becomes more obvious. In other words, what we need are leaders who make decisions not on the basis of a desire to expand power, but as an expression of service. As Herman Rambonpoi said yesterday, there are people who have important functions, but they are not important people. So I'm beginning to move, in fact, I think I've already moved to the other aspect of decision making, which is professional relationships. And I really learned the hard way on this one. When I took over my position 14 years ago, I felt that I needed to prove myself. I did everything. I was a terrible micromanager. If you gave me a postage stamp, I would revise it. I was not only did all the technical work, I was the external representation, I was the person who was at the board, I was the bride at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral. <laughs> but I was driven, I, I, I tried to justify it to myself by saying, look, this is quality control, but in fact it was my insecurity. My ego. I drove myself crazy, I drove my subordinates crazy, and most importantly, I disempowered them. And over time, I realized that the key responsibility in my professional life, the key responsibility, was to actually empower the people who worked with me. And in fact, my responsibility was not to become the indispensable leader, but to actually be as dispensable as possible. And when I left four days ago, I've, this, the, 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 the achievement that gave me the greatest satisfaction was not all the work that I had done, but actually seeing that I had a, a management team in my department that was actually going to take the department to even higher level. Now all of this, in some respects, is achieved or is helped by another aspect of meditation. One which John Mayne calls other-centeredness. And this, again, there's a certain kind of irony to this because, you know, meditation seems like a self-indulgent activity because we go, we, we need time for ourselves. We spend this time looking at our internal life. But in fact, it is a wonderful exercise in taking our attention off ourselves. Through meditation, you learn to take your attention off yourself and to focus on the other. Instead of just waiting for someone to stop talking so that you can resume, you actually listen. <laughs> I used to go into meetings with my subordinates and say, okay guys, this is what we're going to do. Instead, I learned to go around the table, get everybody's views, and even if my mind had not been changed, the wisdom of my position had been confirmed by listening to others and I was, I was able to see different angles. And more importantly, others felt that they had been drawn into the process. So I'm going to conclude by making some more general observations about the contemplative practice in the secular world, that it's not just about leadership. The first 
Is this concept of detachment, of other-centeredness, it's all about gaining a perspective of the world where we no longer occupy the center. It's the Galileo of the spiritual world. And second, one of the consequences of this perspective is you realize that the way in which you acquire meaning in your life is by experiencing your work as a form of service. It's an extension of the Dalai Lama's insight that happiness is achieved by strengthening your capacity to exercise compassion. The third point is that this perspective is experiential. It is not achieved through the rational process. It is not achieved through the deliberative process, but through the contemplative process where you actually experience yourself as a bigger person than your fears, your thoughts, and your emotions, and your ego. You feel connected to something larger. In short, it is a spiritual experience. Fourth, it can be painful. One of the benefits of living in your own world based on fears and fantasies rather than in the real world is that you get to create this narrative of yourself, one where others are to blame, never you. It's you don't admit your mistakes because it's others who make them, not you. It is a very comfortable world, but it is a world where you do not grow. Fifth. And this is the good news. It can also, however, be very liberating. Why is that? I have learned that as much as we try to control our lives, many things are outside our control. We cannot plan for everything. Things are bad, things are going to happen. But one thing that we can control is our state of mind. That's the one thing that we can control, and it can make a huge difference in your life. One of my favorite images is the one that is um, given by Shantideva, who was a Mahayana Buddhist monk who wrote uh, uh, several wonderful tracts. And, he, and, he, and he, he uses the following analogy. Imagine you open the door to your house, and you see that the landscape in front of you is full of thorns and you can't walk outside. You have a choice. You can spend the next 15 years trying to cut all the thorns, or you can wear a pair of shoes. <laughs> so it's about finding happiness through looking at your own state of mind. The final point is a little bit personal, which is for those who are firmly in the second part of their lives, this allows one to experience life not just as a process of aging, but as actually a process of growth. Although it sometimes feels painful, it has the benefit of feeling that your best years are in front of you. Thank you very much.